Hey everybody, it's Corin Mana, and welcome to Games Are Fun. We're officially a podcast now. Uh, we carried on all major podcast distributors, and in addition, uh, we lost an episode to computer malfunction, and from what I've been told, that's a necessity to be a podcast. So, unfortunately, uh, the second episode being lost to the ether means that... I still have to wait for Tasha and Ralph to be free so that we can have our second full episode recorded. So I wanted to make something kind of simple to uh, fill in the time between. And recently, I picked up a hardback copy of Spire, The City Must Fall, which is a game that I've been really interested in playing. I've been following them for a while, I've been picking up the digital copies, but this was the first time that my local store had had a physical copy of the core rulebook, and I picked it up, and I've been reading it, and I've been getting really excited. I'm going to run a one-shot for my friends. We'll see what happens. Might try recording it. Might try putting it on here. We'll see. But one way or the other, I definitely want to introduce you to this game, because I think it's one of the coolest games that's come out in a long time. Spire, The City Must Fall, is a game where you play as freedom fighters. You're in an oppressive regime that's taken over a city that was historically belonging to your race. Uh, this is a fantasy game, so races are actually pretty distinct. You are Drow, uh, which for anybody who's played any amount of D&D, like those are a bad guy race. But Spire the City Must Fall reimagines them and takes a lot of those tropes like the spider aesthetics and the matriarchal nature of their society, and reimagines them in a really deep and interesting way that makes them not just cackling villains that should be relegated to, you know, creatures that live underground and attack people. There's a whole society here, and it's a society that's in the midst of being oppressed by the Aethir, uh, or elves. The realities that are being shown, while this is a fantasy game with a lot of fantastic elements, it treats the subject matter of being a resistance movement within an oppressed society in a real way, and taking a race that has been maligned for so long and reinventing all the tropes around it is part of that, because when you have an oppressed group, an oppressed people group, there's a narrative that surrounds who they are and prevents them sometimes from being able to seek help and get out of it. So there's a lot of things in here where the game tells you, don't expect to win. You're fighting against something so much bigger than yourself. This isn't a story about heroes. This is a story about fighters who might be branded as heroes, might be branded as terrorists. The very people that you're trying to save might be the ones who end up selling you out. So if all of that sounds interesting, stay on board so you can hear the, the rest of this. Otherwise, um, if this is just like, no, I want to play games where I'm a hero and I get to smack big dragons in the face, like, dude, I get it. This is not in any way meant to be a judgment of those types of games. They're awesome. I've played tons of them. I just think that uh, there's a lot of fun to be had in different, more gritty, dark, and uphill battle that comes in a game like this. So, how do you play Spire, The City Must Fall? Um, well, uh, to build a character is pretty simple. You take a Durance, which is what you did um, prior to being free within the setting, 
uh, all drowned must serve for some number of years at the hands of the Aether. And sometimes your durance um, is a relatively short one. You go and you do labor for like two years, and then you can come back into society and just do whatever you choose to do. Um, sometimes you serve them directly, as in servants in their household. Um, you can fight for them in their war against the gnolls to the south. So this gives you some skills and a couple bonus resistances. I'll get to resistances in a little bit. But it's a pretty simple, like, two-line package about what you're getting. Then you choose a class. And your class is a little less like a D&D class where you're getting a very, like, specific progression that's coming up. And more like a Powered by the Apocalypse playbook in the sense that each of them is pretty distinctly different. And they have unique abilities. And you get a couple of core abilities that are going to be on anybody in that class. And they have optional advances that you can get later. In addition to the core abilities that you get, you'll also get skills or domains. And these are areas that you're really good in. So skills are always some kind of action that you can take. And domains tend to be a little more uh, vague in the sense that they're supposed to represent areas of society or maybe areas of knowledge that you would know a lot about. When you're rolling dice, the general rolling mechanic is you roll a d10 and you're looking for a six or higher to succeed. If you have a skill, you get to roll an extra d10 and you'll take the highest. If you've got a domain, you get to roll an extra d10 and you get to take the highest. So if you have a skill and a domain, you'd roll two extra dice. And lastly, if you have mastery. Mastery is a little bit like D&D's advantage in the sense that you either have it or you don't. So you either get you can't get multiple instances of mastery. If you have mastery from like three different things that are giving you mastery, you still only roll one extra die. So on your own, you can get up to four dice to roll on any given roll. In addition, if someone is helping you and they have a skill or domain that is relevant to what's being done, you can roll an additional die. So theoretically, you could get up to five dice to roll to try and succeed at whatever you're trying to accomplish. The amount of dice you get to roll can be modified by the difficulty of the action. The general difficulty is zero, but it can go up to two for things that are very difficult. So those subtract d10s from your dice pool. So if you're really, really, really good at what you're doing, and it's really, really, really hard, uh, you could roll as many as three dice. Like I said, you're looking for six or higher. Uh, it's even better to get eight or higher, and awesome if you get a ten. So if you roll 7 or lower, remember 6 and 7 will allow you to succeed, but if you roll 7 or lower, you're going to take stress. And stress is sort of damage and narrative problems kind of rolled into one thing. You have a number of resistance tracks, and this is a little bit similar to the way that fate handles damage. The resistance tracks take stress that comes from failing rolls, uh, getting a partial success, which is a 6 or 7, so you get what you wanted, but you have to take stress. Um, if you critically fail, you take double stress. Um, casting spells often induces stress on your mind. Every time you take stress to these resistance tracks, the GM will roll a die, and if he rolls under your current stress level, you take Fallout. Fallout becomes a very specific problem, as opposed to stress just sort of being an abstracted, there are problems going on. So you might get bleeding, which, uh, if you don't see a doctor, will eventually kill you. Uh, you might get uh, a broken bond with an NPC. 
you might get uh, people on the lookout for you, so you can't go to certain areas. There's a bunch of different things that these fallouts can be, but uh, they serve as a more substantial problem that you have to deal with than just stress. They're harder to get rid of than stress is. Also, when you take a fallout result, you will lower your stress by a certain amount. So there's minor, moderate, and severe types of fallout, and the Minor ones tend to be, here's a problem you have to deal with. Moderate is, if you don't deal with this problem, something really bad is going to happen. And severe is generally, you may have a very limited time left in this game. So there's a bunch of different ones that are given in the book, and they recommend that GMs make up their own that are more relevant to whatever their story they're telling. But you can kind of have an idea of power levels. The severe fallouts tend to be things like dying, where on your next action, you must either find a way to deal with the fact that you are dying, so get somebody to heal you or something, or you can choose to take a heroic final action and you roll with mastery no matter what it is, and then you die, right? So that's an example of a severe fallout. It's intense. It means that your character is probably going to leave the game soon. And that's a big thing in Spire. They tell you not to get attached to your character. They tell you that you're probably going to die long before you accomplish your overall goal. You are trying to take a step on a long journey rather than complete the journey on your own. So we've gone over the basic rolling mechanics and the problems that can arise throughout the game. Let's talk about what type of characters are in Spire. And to do this, I'm actually going to go over the core book classes. So in the book, these are in alphabetical order. And so we start with the Azurite. The Azurite is a trader, a deal maker, and a hustler. They wear the blue robes of the god Azure. They're sort of merchant priests. And because of that, they have a code about the way that they approach doing buying and selling. People trust them to make good deals because it is a religious endeavor for them to sell things. So as an example of how your class will affect your character sheet, they gain resistances silver plus two. That means that the silver resistance, which represents how much money you have and how much financial pressure is on you, they have more because they wheel and deal all the time. They have more money. Reputation resistance track gets plus two. So uh, people respect the Azurites in this society. They're considered good people that are part of the necessary fabric of society. So people tend to give them a little leeway. Uh, there's a ability called a refresh, and every class gets its own refresh. And the refresh is one of the ways that you remove stress between sessions, or in during sessions, actually. So carry out a deal that benefits you more than it does the other parties. They're refresh. So being a good wheeler and dealer will take some stress off this character. Uh, they gain the skills compel and deceive. Uh, compel is trying to convince somebody to do something. Deceive is convincing them of a lie. Domains, commerce, and either high society or low society. So where is it that you do your trading? And no matter what, you've got commerce. Starting bonds. 
they have an individual level bond with somebody who buys, sells, or smuggles things for a living. Name them and what they're most interested in. So in creating your character, you're setting certain parts of the world up. And this book uh, makes it very clear at a certain point that they want you to create the world. They've put a lot of canon information into their books, but they want this game to be your game. So things like being able to put NPCs into positions so that you can then play off of those NPCs' motivations is very important in trying to create that sort of unique feel that it's this is our game, this is our world, this is the people we want to fight for. So the second bond they get is you have a bond with one of the other NPCs. So that's the thing, there's always going to be an NPC bond and a PC bond described in these starting bonds. You have a bond with one of the other NPCs who helped you out of debt. Say who and or who you helped out of debt. Say who and why they got into debt in the first place. Uh, then they have an equipment section, and again, like in Powered by the Apocalypse playbooks, uh, it's a sort of like list of equipment that you get, and you can pick between one or the other. Um, so this one is a set of blue robes with many layers, a smattering of gold jewelry made from coins overseas, a buckler of azure, uh, gives armor one, which means that it increases your blood resistance track by one, also counts as a holy symbol, and a serious-looking club, which does D3 damage and has the Brutal tag. So this uses Powered by the Apocalypse weapon tagging. Or you could take three sets of beautiful robes and girdles, each slightly different shades of blue, golden necklaces, nose rings, and bracelets bearing the symbol of Ashur, and weapon, a bodyguard, who does D6 damage and has the Tiring trait, which means that if he fails to attack, his weapon die goes down. And then you get your core abilities. So the Azurite gets cut a deal once per session, set up a meet with an NPC who can acquire pretty much anything available in Spire. It won't be free though, and odds are they'll want a favor or cut too. Heart's Desire. Once per situation, pick an NPC that you can observe for a while. The GM will tell you what they want most of all right now. So I don't want to go through reading the entire character's uh, like advances, but just understand that there's a list of advances rated low, medium, and high, and based on the missions you go on will determine whether you can pick a low, medium, or high advance. And when you pick these advances, they build on the foundation that that class already has, and they're going to be abilities similar to the core abilities where they're pretty distinct. It's not just, oh, you get plus two on these types of roles or anything like that. It's, it's, Here's a thing you can accomplish reliably, because you're this class. The next class is Bound. Now, the Bound is acrobatic, a vigilante, accustomed to dealing quick and decisive judgment to criminals. That's the description. The big thing about them is that they bind to small gods they imbue into their weapons. And this is done through a ritual. You can do it again if you lose your weapon for some reason. Um, but the big thing is that all... Almost all of their abilities require that you have these sort of minor god-bound things. This is another way that this game builds upon its narrative by... There's nothing before this that necessarily talks about the concept of small gods. But now we've introduced in this character class the fact that there are things we call small gods, and they make your weapons powerful. So 
that idea of this sort of like spirit magic that exists in the setting is built through the class description. Uh, they get resistances in blood and shadow. They refresh by bringing a criminal to justice. They gain the skills, fight, sneak, and pursue the domains low society and crime. They have bonds with the downtrodden underclasses. They saved a PC. They gain either a god knife or a god axe, which are a little different. Uh, they start with armor and some climbing stuff. And their special abilities, they get surprise infiltration, where they can choose to enter a scene they weren't already in, as long as they could conceivably get there somehow. So you just have to be able to justify how they were there. And again, it's surprise infiltration. So like maybe that beggar over there, it was me the whole time. They can do this once per session. I find this really interesting. Like uh, there's another class later on in the book that has a very similar ability. And if I were running a PC as a GM uh, to try and fill out the party with like a small number of players, I definitely would pick one of these two classes because of their ability to like appear out of nowhere. Because when you're a GM running a PC, you want to kind of like lay back a little bit and give the players the chance to do cool things and then come in when they need help. So that ability to literally say, like, hey, I'm popping this character into the scene when they weren't there before, I think is really interesting as a GM. And then they have the Bound Blade. You get to do special stuff with your uh, bound weapons, and you have the ability to create bound weapons. Uh, a lot of their advances deal with their bound weapon and what they get for using their bound weapon. So um, at core, you really just have one and uh, you can create a new one if you need to, but uh, the abilities come as you advance the character. Uh, let's, let's get an example in there. So the secret of second skin. The god in your armor watches out for you. Once per session, when attacked by an enemy and the GM would roll to inflict stress, you take one stress instead. The Saint of Blades. You loosen the bindings on the god in your blade, and it thanks you. Your blade's damage increases by one step and gains the defensive tag. So, uh, to be clear, like it's not saying that you do that actively. Uh, you, this is a permanent thing. You bonded further with the god in your knife, and so it becomes more powerful and defends you. Uh, and one of the really high ones, let's see, the god of shadows. Uh, you gain plus two shadow. At the start of a situation, you cannot be seen unless you draw your, draw attention to yourself by attacking or making a loud noise. You can return to the state by marking D3 stress and shadow or blood. Carrion priests. I'm going to read this description because they're pretty interesting. Part of the followers of Charnel, a heretical sect of death worshippers who live atop Spire in towers and upliets of New Heaven. You believe that the bodies of the dead should be eaten by sacred hyenas to ensure the safe passage of their souls to the afterlife. We've touched on this a little bit, but religion plays a pretty heavy role in this game. The idea that the drow follow a number of disparate gods in their pantheon, and people have a tendency to dedicate themselves to that religion's tenets. But it should be clear that all of these things work in conjunction. It's not like most of these people are religious zealots who feel that people who don't worship their god need to be killed. It's, it's generally a heavy implication on how you view the world and what you view as important. The Azurites view commerce 
as a sacred endeavor, right? That doesn't mean that they're not trying to make profits. They, in fact, find making profit part of the sacred endeavor. Uh, but you have these carrying priests who believe that in order for the soul to properly enter the afterlife, the body must be destroyed in full, and that the best way to do that is for a hyena to eat it, because the spirits of the hyenas are the psychopomps in their religion. I just find that amount of world building to be really interesting. I love a setting that has complexities and things that a character could theoretically argue about, but it's not necessarily put in a position where it's like, hey, you have to argue about this. The game resistances in Blood and Reputation, the refresh is to complete a hunt and take the quarry. The skills are to pursue and sneak. The domains are religion and low society. There's street level bond with the faithful of the charnel. You have a bond with a PC who they helped deal with death, either by guiding them through the grieving process or disposing of the body. You start with leather armor and a hyena, and their core abilities are really focused on uh, this hyena. So they get a hyena and they get two commands that they can give to the hyena. Um, they have abilities that they get farther on that uh, give them more more commands that the hyena can understand. And sometimes the hyena is treated as a weapon. Um, like you can take Sikkim, um, which is a command that says if you uh, surprise somebody, you give them brutal. You give your attacks the brutal tag. Um, you can do guard. All the stress you would take gets reduced because the hyena is getting in the way and making it hard for them to find easy openings. And lay of the land is the other core ability you get. Uh, when you enter a dangerous situation, you can name up to three features or opportunities that your allies can take advantage of. So again, they're giving a power to the players that literally allow them to tell the GM what elements they want to see in the scene. So I love games that do that, because while you can do that in any game, systems that specifically tell players to do it mean it's going to happen. So the next class we're going to talk about is the Firebrand. Now this one was really interesting to me, because its abilities seem kind of counterintuitive for a lot of the other ways that you could approach these games. That's why I think it's really interesting when you have these playbook-oriented character classes, because they sort of tell players and GMs what kind of actions to expect from the players. So the Firebrand is a revolutionary, a rabble-rouser, and a dangerous crime criminal in the eyes of the authorities. They have uh, a huge amount of extra reputation and some shadow. Uh, they refresh whenever they take something back from those who would oppress them. They're good at compelling and stealing. They have domains low society, and crime. They start with simple weapons. But here in the core abilities, this is where I think they get interesting. Lead from the front. When you have six or more stress in shadow, gain mastery on all actions. So this to me is insanely interesting. Because when you're at six stress, fallout rolls have a very high chance of causing fallout. So they're saying when you're living on the edge, we're just going to let you take mastery on everything. And having six stress in shadow means that you're making a lot of noise. You're, you're not doing a good job of keeping yourself hidden in secret. 
away from the eyes of the people who control everything. And realistically, you need to keep yourself hidden. So it, I don't think it's an incongruous ability. It's saying if somebody is playing this character class, it means we're going to have a more direct confrontation between the players and the authorities. The second ability is draw a crowd. Once per session, you can draw a crowd to you in a matter of minutes. People will stop what they're doing as long as it isn't life or death and listen to what you have to say. So this class gives a player the ability to make himself hurt. Which if you have a character who likes playing, a character who rouses people to a cause, or even just wants to be able to speak in a public forum and things like that, it, it's interesting that they built in a way for that to happen. Uh, some of their advancements are also pretty interesting because it states that like they can get NPCs to come fight with them and stuff. Um, I, it's just an interesting class. Next up is the idol. You are a beautiful artist and revolutionary. Your creations can reshape the world through bleeding edge, half-understood sorcery. Uh, this is just a really interesting class to me because it's saying, again, like we have this character who theoretically is a public presence acting within the resistance. They're not really supposed to be going and like punching people in the face and like stabbing guards or anything like that. But point is that they're trying to shift people's perceptions and things like that. And having these more interesting character classes that aren't so focused on combat, to me, is great world building and great uh, design. Uh, if we get too locked into this idea that you just have to go and like punch some things, like all the games become the same and become disinteresting. So there are core abilities, uh, life and soul of a party, once per session, as so long as there are people nearby and a place to have it, you can create an instant gathering with dancing, games, drinking, eating, and chatting. Party gives you mastery to persuade, deceive, and distract actions performed within it. So again, just this like really interesting ability that is designed to like create a specific type of scene that this player wants to be in. Glamour. Black magic and poise lets you become whoever they want you to be. Once per situation, choose an NPC. Using a cocktail of charm, practiced poise, and semi-legal black magic, you can change your appearance to represent their ideal partner. You don't get to determine what this looks like. It's entirely reliant on the person you're targeting. And you can end the spell by scrubbing off whatever makeup you've applied and spending five minutes in front of a mirror remembering what you look like. Whatever your target prefers, you'll always look like you. If they're obsessed with tall people, you'll look taller. If they like a fear, You'll look as though there's some afear blood in you. If they're mad about one particular person, you'll resemble them, but not enough to say passes them. So it, it's pointing out that this isn't changing your true appearance. This is changing their perception of you, that whatever it is that makes them favorable to people, they're going to see it in you, whether you really have it or not. Their advances tend to focus on more of these like creating social situations um, or possibly controlling the social situation. Some people have probably already gotten bored, and I'm going to try and speedrun uh, a couple more of these core classes. So the first one I'm going to talk about is Knights. So this is another really interesting like world-building thing. There were a bunch of orders of Knights that the uh, Elphir allowed to continue to exist as long as they swore fealty to the Elphir. And 
they continue to work, and they're the only people who are legally, the only drow who are legally allowed to carry weapons in the society. But because of their power, they've become corrupt over time, and they're basically just a bunch of, like, frat boys who, like, sometimes enact mafia-style things where they uh, tell people, you know, pay up or we're not protecting you, we're not going to go after anybody who robs you, and uh, we'll make sure everybody knows that, so it's going to be a problem. So you can be in this order of knights, and it's kind of up to you whether you're a good knight or you're just a knight who's willing to work with the resistance. The abilities they get are like pub crawler, pick a fight, lob the docks. You can see how there's the the they're real rough and ready types. The Lahan. Um so in the setting, the main center of the resistance is the ministry, and the ministry is a sort of dark version of the main religion of Drow that the Aethir the have allowed to propagate. So that is the religion of our glorious lady, the moon goddess, and the Lahan are her priests. So the ministry believes in the second moon goddess, who the Aethir do not like and do not like Drow talking about, uh, which is the goddess of the dark side of the moon, and is the goddess who rules over trickery and deceit and secrets. But the Lahan are the silvered. They're the chosen of the glorious lady, the light side of the moon. Uh, they're about promoting good in the society, and they are very much that iconic priest-style character. They literally have a spell that they get as a core ability that allows healing to happen. The Masked. So the Elfir society has a heavy focus on the idea that you should not show your true face. Uh, they all wear masks, and the masks that the Elfir wear are these really elaborate and sometimes garish things. But when they take drow servants, they give them masks as well, because being unmasked is kind of like being naked in their society. But the masks they give them tend to be much simpler servant masks, right? Just a, a simple leather mask to cover your face. So you play a character who has served the Aphir, and that gives you the ability to know how to move in Aphir society, which, since you're working for the Resistance, that could actually be a very powerful tool. Um, many of their advances are focused on being able to talk to an Aphir um, and get a favorable result, or know who's in charge in a given area, like what 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 secrets the Aphir are keeping. You know how to notice the subtle social cues that they give off. Should also be noted there's a expansion book for this game called Book of Masks that lists a whole bunch of masks and gives them like either equipment bonuses or special like things they can do. Um, there are some pretty freaky masks in there. Um, so I'll, I'll let you find that out by looking in the book, but yeah, there's some dark stuff in this game. Alright, so this is one of my favorite classes, the Midwife. I'm going to read its description and see if you see what I'm talking about when I say they took old tropes and gave them new life. You are one of a line of ancient scholars and defenders of the drow, blessed with an arachnid bloodline that you have been taught to augment via sorcery and meditation. In addition to this, you are responsible for the future of your race. You take care of unborn drow while they gestate in their egg sacs, watching over them and keeping them safe from harm. 
So yeah, this this thing where the midwives are these sort of spider ladies, and um, they're highly respected by the community because they're literally the caregivers to the unborn, and uh, their place in society is so important. Uh, and this is the class that gets that ability where they can just like pop into a scene. They have an ability called Martyr. Uh, you sacrifice your life inch by inch to safeguard the future of the drought. Once per session, when an ally takes Fallout, you appear nearby so long as it would be even slightly feasible for you to do so. They ignore the effects of the Fallout, and you take D6 stress to an appropriate resistance instead. So, I mean, that's just an, a really interesting way to handle a class. Uh, many of their abilities focus on defending other players. Um, a few of them focus on this idea that they have this, like, spider power and they can weave the web. Um, so, like, uh, weave the web is literally an advance that says you can weave a bond between people who've never met. And that, that idea of, like, weaving or web making or strands, right, being strands of fate, definitely built into them. Uh, they get abilities where they can summon spiders. There's lots of cool stuff in here. Vermissian Sage. So, uh, in this setting, humans are mercenaries from another continent who started fighting for the Aether for money. And the reason the Aether hire humans is because they have technological advancements that the other races don't have. So, they're this weird sort of like alchemist, scientist race to a degree, and they tried to make a transportation system in Spire. We haven't talked that much about the Spire. It's this giant vertical city, and nobody really knows who made the Spire or what its original purpose was, but now all these people are living here. And somebody tried to make uh, this sort of subway system that would take you both up and down and around various floors, and the things they were trying to do with it ended up like tearing holes in space and time, and uh, they just abandoned the project. Um, and now the Remsian sages want to preserve the histories of the drow, which the Aether are slowly burning out of existence. So they use uh, the Vermissian tunnels as a way to hide their library and to be transporters of information. So there's a mix of that, like, um, the mailman uh, concept from science fiction mixed with, um, you know, adventure scholar. So these are all the core classes. And as you can see, like, it's there's plenty of classes in here that are designed around fighting, but there's also plenty of classes that are designed around doing other things like disseminating information or changing people's perceptions. This game understands that a resistance movement isn't just, I go and I blow up a building. You might blow up buildings, but you might also try to get people to act in a certain way so that they can start removing the oppression from their society, to get the oppressors to recognize that they are oppressors. All those kinds of things. They also have a section on extra advances, which are uh, you can theoretically do these no matter which class you are. Uh, I'll read some of the titles of those extra advantages. City Guard, Chosen of the Hungry Deep, Enlisted, The Faithful of King Teeth. I don't even know what that's about. Grey Manor Investigator, Hellionite, Luck, Priest of Stoles, 
Minister Solar Devotee. Uh, I should note that uh, the a fear worship sun gods. So this is somebody who uh, actually believes in the a fear religion. But you are still drow. Uh, Vigilite, the specific mini cult, and the Viscant. Um, this is kind of complicated to explain without going deep into it, but like there's this race of like mantis people, and they're kind of like werewolves, like they infect you and you become a mantis person over time. It's kind of an interesting thing that's in here. I'll note that the section on combat is only about two pages long because it doesn't really differentiate from the main core mechanics expressed in the core mechanics section. There's as much space given to an example fight as there is to explaining the fight rules. Yeah, the combat rules just basically use the main system. So there's two pages dedicated to how combat works, one of which is an example fight. There are, however, almost 120 pages devoted to talking about the various factions and groups that exist within the setting. So you can see how this world is very dedicated to the idea of interacting with different groups and peoples to accomplish your goal more than it is trying to fight in a combat. There's a couple of appendixes in the book. One has some Kickstarter backer created gods, which are interesting. Um, the next appendix is a sort of, it's a set of tables. Tables have a tendency to imbue the world with lore more than people think they will. So like for instance, for instance there's a table in here, what beautification surgery has this alefare undergone? And the list is subcutaneous thorn implants, skin grafts in fashionable tones, subdermal Subdermal Everfrost, leading to steaming breath, silver or gold reboning, eye tattoos, permanent weeping modification, surgical remo removal of unbeautiful memories, additional fingers, larynx tuning, and wrist lengthening. It gives you an idea of how garish, that's not even the right word, how insane their high society has gotten, what weird things they're doing because they're bored, because they're nigh-immortal beings who have conquered an entire race and enslaved them, just how lavish and ridiculous they get with their attempts to come out of that boredom. The third appendix in this book is a drow glossary. And it's exactly what you think it is. It just it goes over a lot of the fantasy terms that they have and explains what they are. It's only about a page long. Uh, then there's Appendix 4, and it may be my favorite appendix. Rumored Goats. So as we said, uh, Spire is a giant sci-fi fantasy city that has a bunch of weird arcane technology in it and a bunch of arcane weird things in it. And this list of goats... It's just so funny to me. Like, I didn't think goats were going to matter, but goats apparently matter. 
Uh, Appendix 5 is called Known Arcologies and Discoveries Found Therein, and it's just a short little list of some um, spots in the spire that have uh, sort of more interesting stuff in them rather than just know, an arcane-looking hallway. Appendix 6 has a random list of street-level and city-level antagonists. Appendix 7 is a list of suggested media, and I'm going to go through these in case uh, you want to get a feel for what these guys think are totally uh, in keeping with the themes of this book. So for music, they have the Bloodborne soundtrack, Only Lovers Left Alive soundtrack, The Devil is Fine by Zeal and Ardor, which, by the way, if you have not ever checked out Zeal and Ardor, uh, which wouldn't surprise me, they're pretty uh, not well known, they do some really interesting stuff, um, like taking spirituals and um, mixing them with uh, heavy metal. There, there's just there's some really interesting stuff going on in their work. Chalice Hymnal by Grails, and Midnight Radio Gore Hotel by Bohren der Club of Gore. Books and Comics, uh, The Gormengast, Neuromancer, Perdido Street Station, Iron Council, the Discworld series, specifically the Watchbooks, Blame! Hellboy, and the Lies of Locke Mora. Locke Lamora. Role-playing games. Unknown Armies. Hunter the Vigil. Changeling the Lost. Dark Heresy, with particular reference to Hive Worlds. Films. Dread. The Raid. Dark City. Blade Runner. Hellboy 2. TV. The Wire. Peaky Blinders. Blackadder. And Breaking Bad. Uh... I will, I will mention, if you're unfamiliar with Black Hatter, uh, it is definitely the odd one out in that list of four. And other uh, sources, Fallen London and Sunless Sea, which are technically the same universe. Um, yeah, I get, a, I get heavy Fallen London vibes from this game. Bloodborne and Necromunda. Well, hopefully you've uh, found this look through the Spire core rulebook to be interesting and not boring. Uh, I think this game is super awesome. I can't wait to get a chance to play it, and um, hopefully I get to share that with you in some degree, either by talking about it afterwards or um, putting up like an actual play. We'll see what happens. Um, thanks for listening, and remember, games are fun, so go play some.